So a heavenly being, a soldier and a prostitute walk into a church. It's not a joke. That's the outline of my sermon today. We talk about a heavenly being, a soldier, and a prostitute. We're in this series on Joshua, and it's not necessarily going through the book of Joshua. It's about stories and, and lessons from the life and times of Joshua. And while Joshua interacts with all three of these, it's not the direct um, lesson we learn from Joshua. But as we look at these three, what seem to be unrelated stories, we'll see that as we kind of juxtapose them, that, that there's some commonalities, and they all point to the holiness and the heart of God. Now, as I said last week, for some of you who like things in chronological order and last week just drove you crazy because I went backwards, today's going to make things even worse. Because one of the stories comes from before the Israelites went into Jericho. One, that's in Jericho too. One of the stories comes from when they've gone across the Jordan but have not, have not uh, gone to Jericho. And that's in Jordan. Joshua number five, a lot of J's here. And the other story is from what happens in Jericho and after in Joshua six and seven. And what makes matters worse is we're not going to be doing those in that order either. So we're going to look at these three stories. And I'll say this right up front. As we look at these stories, each one of these could be a sermon in and of itself. And two of them could have been complete series for themselves. As I was studying this and putting together, it was so much editing that I had to do. And I thought, why do I do this to myself? Or, or worse, why do I do this to you? Bring in way more stuff than we can cover. So we're going to look at three different stories, three different parts of Joshua. In addition to that, we're going to look a little about one of the things out of the prophet Hosea, out of Matthew, out of Acts and Hebrews. Are you ready to go? Okay, you're going to have to stick with me on this one. If you were with us last week, you know that we had the, the Israelites come across the Jordan River into the promised land. And as they did, Joshua had chosen 12 men, one from each of the tribes, to pick up a large stone, put it on his shoulder, and carry it off. And they set these 12 stones up in a place called Gilgal, and it was a monument. It was a reminder. It was a marker so that they would never forget what God had done. And they could tell their children when they say, Mommy, Daddy, what are all those rocks about? They could talk about how God had led them through the Red Sea and likewise across the Jordan River. And not only that, that God had provided and been faithful, it says this in Joshua chapter 4, verse 24, he did this so that all the peoples of earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful and so that you might always fear the Lord your God. And we spent some time talking about what does it mean to fear God? Why, that seems like such a, an odd thing. To fear God is simply to take him very very seriously. And part of this pile of stones, these 12 stones, was to remind them and their children, we take God very, very seriously. And today, when we look at three, these three stories, we will see how this plays out. Now, some of the stories Pastor Kip alluded to and touched on a couple of weeks ago, I'm going to take us a little bit farther into some of those stories. One of the things that he talked about was that when, when the Israelites had gone across the Jordan River and were preparing to take Jericho, Joshua encounters this mysterious warrior, man, being thing. And this is what it says in Joshua chapter 5, verse 13. Now, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went up to him. That I find odd. Here's this guy, you don't know, he's not one of you, you don't recognize him, he's got a sword in his hand, and you'll walk right up to him? Joshua, what are you thinking? Either he's a little bit foolish, or he's taking that be strong and courageous thing real literally, or he comes up, and he comes up to this guy, he's never seen this man before, he doesn't know him, he knows he's not part of the Israelites, because he's not wearing what they're all wearing, and he's standing there with a sword in his hand. 
So Joshua strikes up a conversation with him and asks him a question. Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us or for our enemies? A good thing to know. But I'm wondering, what if the man with the sword drawn says, uh, by the way, I'm for your enemies? Not a good thing. Joshua's running back across the Jordan River at that point. Here he is. Now we'll find out in just a few words that this man with the drawn sword is actually the commander of God's army. So you would think the answer is obvious and very easy. Of course we know who he's for, okay? Because this is Joshua. He is the newly anointed leader of Israel. You know, God's chosen people, God's covenant people, the people who have God's commandments, the promised people that are going into the promised land who are all about the purposes of God. I will be your God and you will be their, my people. It's obvious. And yet this commander of the Lord's army with the, the sword drawn doesn't give the obvious answer. Joshua asked him, are you for us? Are you for our enemies? Neither, he replied. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua hits, hits the ground. Neither. Neither. This is interesting. Because Joshua is in, inquiring of this man, are you for us or are you for them? And it's kind of almost like, you know what? If you want to be on the winning side, stick with us because God's promised us this land and he's going to do some incredible things. And I think this man who has a sword is saying, listen, you're asking the wrong question. Let me ask you a question. Whose side are you on? It's not about the Israelites and the Canaanites. It's about God and everybody else. And you've got to figure out whose side are you on. This is where I think we could stop and do an entire sermon on this little phrase here. Because isn't it true, and whether you admit it or not, so often our prayers are all about trying to get God to bless our plans. Trying to make sure we've got God on our side. Trying to make sure that God is working for our purposes. That he's using you know, his power to, to bring about the answers for our prayers and, and to, to bless our thing that we're doing. And maybe we're asking the wrong thing. Instead of saying, God, we want you on our side to make sure that we're on God's side. Instead of asking him to always bless what we're doing, say, God, what are you doing? Yeah, I think about this on a Friday night in a football field where there's a godly mom on this side of the field praying that God would bless her son and let them win. And there's a godly mom on this side of the field praying that God would bless her son and let them win. What's a deity to do? <laughs> are you for us or for them? And I think God would say, neither. Are you for me? That's the bigger question. And don't we see this modeled with Jesus when he said, I have come to do the will of my father. And in that desperate moment when he, when he was facing the hardest thing ever, he said, not my will, but your will be done. See, I think we could spend our whole time just talking about making sure that we as individuals, we as a people are aligning ourselves with God or walking in step with his spirit or being obedient to his calling, to his plans, to his purposes, rather than always trying to twist his arm so that he can be a genie in a bottle, a magic rabbit's foot, a vending machine to give us our blessings. But that's not what this sermon's all about. But at this point, there's this question of whose side are you on? And this will come into play fearing God and figuring out, are you on his side in the other two stories that we're going to look at? Now, each of these stories, you'll see, I'll spend increasingly amount of time because somebody said, wow, we're a third of the way done with the sermon. Oh no, we're not. <laughs> the, the next two stories that we're going to look at are really kind of a, kind of a study in contrasts. 
I mean, one of them, one of them is this good news story, and one of them is a, is a bad news story. One of them is a story of victory, and one of them is a story of defeat. One is a story of obedience, and one is a story of rebellion. In some ways, they are so diametrically opposed, they couldn't be more opposite, and yet they have this place where they interchange, where they're exactly the same, and then they diverge to different outcomes. Because one is a story of guilt and judgment, and the other is a story of guilt and grace. Both are guilty, but the outcome is different. As I said, they're contrast story. One is a story about a man. One is a story about a woman. The man is Jewish. The woman is a Canaanite, an Amorite even. This Jewish man, he serves and worships the one true God, Yahweh, monotheism. This Canaanite woman, she's from a culture of polytheism and all these gods and idols and, and all this pagan worship. This Jewish man who, who worships Yahweh, he, he's a soldier in the army of Israel. This Canaanite woman who's involved with all this pagan wor worship has an occupation of a prostitute. You see, the Jewish man is the quintessential insider in the Jewish mind. A Jewish male worshiping Yahweh, working for God's purposes in the army for, of Israel. And this woman is the quintessential outsider in the Jewish mind. She's a woman, which in that culture was best case scenario, a second class citizen. But she's a Canaanite, she's a Gentile, she's a pagan, she's an Amorite, she's worshiping false gods, and she's immoral. She's a prostitute. The two stories, the story of the man Achan and of the woman Rahab. Well, let's look at Achan first. As I said already, he's, he looks like this perfect insider man, this male Jewish one who, who worships Yahweh as a part of their army. And in addition to that, he's of a, of a royal lineage. His pedigree is such that he's from the tribe of Judah. Judah was the royal tribe. Judah was the tribe from which David would come. Judah was the tribe from which Jesus would come. And he's of this royal pedigree. On top of that, this man has been raised with Moses as his leader. He's experienced manna on the ground his entire life. He's drank water that came from a, from a rock. He's eaten quail that were somehow ushered into the camp. He has seen the Shekinah glory. He has seen the pillar of fire in the clouds. He, he's walked with it. He's been at Mount Sinai. He's heard the Ten Commandments. He saw the baton pass to Joshua. He was there when they walked across the Jordan River. Maybe, there's nothing biblically to support this at all. This is all biblical. But maybe he was one of the 12 that picked up one of the stones. Maybe. But he walked across the Jordan and he saw the stone set up there at Gilgal. And as we talked about last week, he was circumcised at Gilgal. And he celebrated the Passover that had been neglected for 38 years. He had seen the miracles of God. He had heard the covenant. He knew the laws. And he was a part of that group that marched around Jericho six days straight and on the seventh day, seven times around. He was an insider if there ever was one. Now before the conquest of Jericho, there were some very, very clear instructions that were given to them. We find this in Joshua chapter 6. The city, Jericho, and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Pastor Kip preached on this extensively two weeks ago, this, this, the devoted things, the haram or the haram, uh, the devoted things to the Lord. That usually, when they would take a city, 
all the plunder was free for the taking. That was part of the compensation for being a warrior, as a soldier. But not on this one. This is kind of a first fruits, a kind of like a tithe. And this first one, all of this belongs to the Lord. It's holy. It's set apart to the Lord. And it is instructed, but keep away from the devoted things so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Very clear here. If you take anything of the spoils of Jericho, it will be to your own demise. You will be bringing destruction down upon yourself. And not only you, but your actions, your disobedience, your rebellion will impact others. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. So, it's very, very clear. Don't take anything from Jericho. If you do, you're going to face problems. Actually, we're all going to face problems. So don't do it. They go, they march around Jericho. Jericho falls. It's an amazing thing. At the end of chapter six, it says, and the Lord was with Joshua and his fame spread throughout the land. They're in, they've crossed the Jordan River. Jericho has fallen without them lifting a finger. They haven't even broken a fingernail on this one. And the fame is going forward. Everything is great. The first word of chapter seven, but. But the Israelites, plural, acted unfaithfully in regard to the devoted things. Achan, singular, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of them. It was very clear. You don't touch any of this stuff. If you do, it will bring destruction on you and it will bring trouble to all of Israel. And Achan took some of these forbidden things. Now, here's how you will always be able to remember him and what he's done. Not only was the, the spoils or the plunder of Jericho forbidden, there were other things in the Levitical law that were forbidden. In the dietary law, there were things that were forbidden. Most heartbreakingly, bacon, <laughs> pork. It was forbidden. This is how you're going to remember this. Achan stole the bacon. Achan stole this forbidden, and that wasn't really bacon, but it, it was as good as bacon. He stole this stuff that was forbidden. He wasn't allowed to take this, but he took it. And what he took specifically, one was this beautiful Babylonian robe. I mean, he saw this thing. It was the, 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 the fabric and the, the stitching and the beauty of this Babylonian robe. He thought, I'll take it, which I wonder, Achan, where are you going to wear this? They've been wearing the same clothes for 40 years. Styles have not changed. All of a sudden, he's sporting this deal. He's going to stick out like a sore thumb. But he takes it anyway, and he takes five pounds of silver and a little gold wedge that's a pound and a half. And he thinks it's all fine. No one saw. I'll just do this for me. No harm, no foul. No one's going to get hurt. This was my choice. No one has to know about this. And later we read this. He said, I saw it, I coveted it, I took it, and I hid it. That would be a sermon in and of itself. Right. Sounds like something that happened in the garden. You see, you want, you take, you hide. Anyway, he takes this back to his tent and he hides it and buries it. And no one knows anything about it. So the next thing on the order of agenda here is to take this little town called Ai. The town is as small as the name. The name is spelled Ai, thus Ai. So this little town, think Custer, think concrete, think Alger, backwoods, no problem. This is not a big deal. Hillbillies, Hicks, all due respect. But they say, this is going to be an easy one. 
I mean, we took Jericho without lifting a finger. Ai is this tiny little town. Well, they underestimated them rednecks because the people routed them and 36 casualties in the Israeli army that day. And Joshua doesn't understand. He hits the floor again. God, what are you doing? Why did you even bring us in here to embarrass us and to embarrass your name? Well, how can we, we ought to just go back in the wilderness. And God says, you can read all this on your own. He says, eh, Joshua, get up, get off the floor. Let me tell you, Israel has been unfaithful. They have violated the covenant. They have taken and stolen what is mine and they have lied about it. So here's what I want to do. Tonight, I want you to have all of Israel consecrate themselves before me. Like prepare to meet me, get, get themselves right. Because tomorrow morning, I'm gonna have each of the tribes present themselves before you and I'm gonna point out which tribe this violation has taken place in. And when I point out that tribe, then I'm gonna have each of the clans come by from that tribe. And I'll point out, this is the clan. And when it's narrowed down to the clan, I'll have each of the family members, the family units come and I will tell you which family unit. And when we get to that family unit, then you'll have all the men and I will point out which man it was. Here's a question for you. Do you think God already knew who did this? Why wouldn't he just say, Joshua, it's Achan, go take care of it. But he says, tell them, tell them to prepare themselves tonight because tomorrow, and the 12 tribes, and then the clans, and then the families, and then the men. And so they do. That night, the people consecrate themselves. The next morning, the 12 tribes come before him, and it's the tribe of Judah. And the tribe of Judah comes forward with the clans, and it's the Zerahites, the clan of Zerah. And that clan comes, and there are all these families, and it's Zimri. And all the men of Zimri's family come, and it's Achan. Why this process? Could it be that what we see here is the unbelievable patience and grace of our God, wanting to give Achan every single possible chance to confess and to come clean? He could have done it the night before. He could have done it when the tribes were out there. But even when he's identified the text implies he still doesn't come forward with it until Joshua says, Achan, this is my, my paraphrase, for pity's sake, Achan, before God, tell us what you did. It shows the recalcitrant heart, the hardened heart that he has, that he's unwilling. He doesn't want to conform. It's all about his problem. He doesn't fear God. It's all about his stuff. And only then does Achan say, okay, well, yeah, it was me, and I took some stuff, and it's hidden in my tent. And they run and they get it and they bring him. And we're going to have to fast forward through a bunch of this stuff for the sake of time. But in Joshua 7, 24, it says, Then Joshua, together with all Israel, took Achan, son of Zerah, the silver, the robe, the gold wedge, to the valley of Achor. Now, you may notice Achan and Achor are similar as words. And it's because they have the same root word. Both Achan, the man, and Achor, the valley, come from this root word that Travis Tritt sung about 30 years ago. T-R-O-U-B-L-E. They both have this, this root of, it means trouble. When Achan was born, his parents named him Troublesome. I don't know if it was a tough pregnancy, a difficult delivery, or if he was just colicky, but he got this name Troublesome from birth. And now there's this this valley, and again, the text implies it was not called the Valley of Achor before this event. 
This valley is, is named after Achan. That there will be trouble and this valley will be a remind, reminder of people of what Achan did. Chapter 7, verse 25, and there's this plan words. Joshua said to Achan, troublesome, why have you brought this Achar, this trouble on us? The Lord will bring Achar on you today. Troublesome is in the valley of the troubled because he brought trouble and he brought it to himself and to Israel. And he and his family and his household and all of his stuff was destroyed and was covered with a big pile of rocks, the second monument in the promised land. The first pile of rocks was to remind them of God's provision and his faithfulness and to fear God. It would always be there at Gilgal. The second pile of rocks is a reminder of what happens if you don't fear God and the judgment of God. So I need you to hold on to this because we're going to come back to it at the end of the sermon. The Valley of Acre is the Valley of Trouble. One more time. The Valley of Acre is the Valley of Trouble. Okay, and it's a reminder of God's judgment. All right. The third story is this woman, Rahab. As much as Achan was an insider, Rahab was an outsider. Female, Amorite, Canaanite, pagan-worshipping, prostitute. Now, some would say, well, okay, the word in the Hebrew, prostitute, could also have been innkeeper, and maybe she wasn't that bad after all. Okay, and no, she's full-on pretty woman. She works hard for the money, so you better treat her right. I mean, she is a full-on prostitute. The, the, the verbiage in the New Testament makes it very, very clear. She's not just a keeper of a hotel. She is one who sells her bodies for her sexual favors. Because of all these things, in the Jewish mind, she would have been an absolute outsider. She's not Jewish. She's female. She's an idolater. She's pagan. She's a prostitute. She's immoral. Everything that would cause her to be an outsider. There's a, a, a rabbinic tradition. This is not biblical. Let me, I want to make sure we're clear on this. Because the rabbis, I mean, they had, they had the Torah, the, the, the scriptures. But they also, over the years, they had the Talmud and the Mishnah and the Midrash. The Midrash sounds like a rabbi that didn't get the shingle shot. But... In these traditions, the rabbinic traditions, in the Midrash, it was a, a, a tradition of the rabbis that Rahab was one of the four most beautiful women that ever walked the face of the planet. And if that was the case, she's hated by all the other single ladies. They're jealous of her. Those high pronounced cheekbones, those full plump lips, those piercing eyes. That hair, I'll stop there. All the single ladies hate her. They're jealous of her. All the married ladies despise her. She's a temptress. She's trying to pull our husbands away from us. All the men like her, but they don't really like her. She's just a sex object to fulfill their fleshly passions. And I wonder, even in her own community, if she's a bit of an outsider. I mean, her house is on the fringe of the town on the wall. And while in their culture, maybe she was tolerated, no doubt she was kind of despised. And her family, well, what mom and dad dreams of their girl, their baby girl growing up to be a prostitute? And her brothers, they're so embarrassed because their friends talk about their sister and what they've done. She has no husband and no children. 
I venture to say that Rahab was the most lonely person in all of Jericho. An outsider to the Jewish eyes, an outsider to the Canaanites. Just a small town girl living in a lonely world. I'm thinking about turning this sermon into a musical. Well, Joshua sends two young spies in to check out Jericho before they walk around it. And many people believe, I would be one of them, again, it's a bit speculative, many believe that one of those young spies was a young man named Salmon or Salmon. And they go. Well, they go and, and they find themselves at Rahab's place. To which you're thinking, oh, sure, two young Jewish boys, they get away from the home and they go into Jericho and, hey, look, there's a brothel, house of repute, let's go. Yeah. Could it be that this was a brilliant strategic move? If they're wanting to slip into town and get some intel and not be noticed, where better to go than a brothel? Because people are coming and going all the time and there's foreigners coming and going all the time and no one's really paying much attention to what happens in that house. And kind of like the, the, the cantina in Star Wars where there's all these unsavory characters, you can kind of do some intel pickup and kind of just listen in on some conversations and hear what people are saying. It's a brilliant move. But apparently they're not the best spies in the world because word gets out that Israel has some spies in town and they're at Rahab's. The king of Jericho finds this out. He sends some people to take care of them to, to get them. And Rahab takes a big risk. She hides them and lies about them. If she's found out, this will cost her her life. And so she lies and says, well, yeah, they were here, but they left. They're, they're probably on their way back. Why don't you go, go chase them or something like that? It's an interesting thing that she would do this. Now, listen, nowhere in the text does it say about Rahab, go ye therefore and do likewise. She's not set up as this perfect moral example. She's just a pagan prostitute in Canaan doing these things. It's recorded. It's descriptive, not prescriptive. Okay. So you remember, as long as I'm going with my, uh, my musical theme, Pat Benatar uh, sang this song. She's a heartbreaker, a dream maker, a love taker. Rahab, she's a lawbreaker, a deal maker, a risk taker. She's already taken big risk of hiding these guys. And she breaks laws all the time. Of the Ten Commandments, she regularly breaks six or seven of them. She goes up on the roof and she starts talking to these, these two young spies. And she starts telling them the things that she's heard. No, no doubt there have been men coming in and out of her, her place for, for years. And she's been hearing about this group, these Israelites, and now how they've crossed the, the, the Jordan River. And she says this in Joshua 2, when we heard of it, our hearts melted and everyone's courage failed because of you. So here's Rahab, this outsider, this Canaanite, this immoral prostitute, this pagan God worshiper. She doesn't know the Torah. She doesn't know the covenant. She doesn't know the Ten Commandments. She doesn't know the laws. She doesn't follow the festivals. She doesn't follow the dietary laws. She is an outsider in every, in every sense. But she's heard enough about their God to fear him, to take him very, very seriously. And look at her confession about this God. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. He's not just another one of our family gods. He's not just another one of our nation gods. Your God is different. 
Your God is over all of heaven and earth. She takes him very seriously and she says, and I want to be on his side. Here's this outsider who doesn't know very much, but what she knows, she responds to. And so she says to these guys, when you take Jericho, because we know you will, will you spare me and my parents, my brothers, my family? And they make a deal. Okay, life for life. You make sure we don't get caught, we'll make sure that your life is spared. One condition, one condition is that when we come to take Jericho, you need to have a scarlet cord hanging in your window to mark your place, and you need to stay in your home. Scarlet cord, scarlet cord. That color, why scarlet? Well, maybe, maybe that was a, a color she used to kind of advertise what she offered, kind of a precursor to the red light district. Maybe, maybe it's because she had seen the red scarlet faces of angered wives coming and dragging their husbands out of her place before. Maybe, as Isaiah said, her sins are like scarlet. Or as Nathaniel Hawthorne would write years later, her whole life is a scarlet letter. But now Rahab the prostitute has the scarlet cord of salvation. She would have to put her faith and her trust that this scarlet cord would be the thing that would save her. It's kind of like the Passover all over again. That the scarlet blood that was on the doorpost would cause destruction to go over their houses. And now her scarlet cord would cause destruction to pass over her household. It's kind of like a precursor of the scarlet blood of Jesus that would keep destruction from affecting our lives. So they come and they march. Jericho is destroyed and there's this scarlet cord. Joshua chapter six, verse 23. So the young men, two spies, one of which may have been Solomon, young men who had done the, the spying went in and brought out Rahab, her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. It's kind of an extraction, saving private Ryan kind of thing. They brought out her entire family and put them in a place outside the camp. She's been spared, but she's still an outsider. And rightfully so. They're not Jewish. Her father and her brothers are not circumcised. They haven't followed the Passover. They don't know the laws. They break the Ten Commandments. They don't know the festivals. They haven't kept any of those things. They don't do the dietary laws. They're outsiders. They're spared, but they're still outsiders. But look at two verses later. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her. But because she had hid the men, Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho. And she lives among the Israelites to this day. But this is where the story gets really, really good. Because here's this woman who, by all accounts, is an outsider, but something has happened, and now she lives among them. She's an insider. You begin to see the beautiful grace of God. Yes, her sins were as scarlet as Isaiah says, but they can be made as white as snow. But how does she fit, and what tribe does she be a part of, and and what occupation would she have? I mean, she only knows one, one craft, and it's not a welcomed one in Israel. 
And what about the influence? People kind of worried about her. Well, it seems that there's this young man named Solomon, maybe one of the spies, who sees her. And maybe because of the kindness that she showed to him, he finds himself strangely drawn to him and seeing God's work in her life and begins to fall in love with Rahab. And I can imagine how the musical goes at this point. And he comes to her and he sings, Rahab, you don't have to put on the red light. Those days are over. You don't have to sell your body to the night. Rahab, you don't have to wear that dress tonight. No, no, no. Walk the streets for money. Don't care if it's wrong or if it's right. I loved you since I knew you. I wouldn't talk down to you. I got to tell you how I really feel. I won't share you with another boy. She responds and she sings, I wasn't looking, but somehow you found me. I tried to hide from your love light, but like heaven above me, the spy who loved me is keeping all my secrets safe tonight. And Solomon and Rahab get married. Now, here's the other thing. Solomon is from a very royal lineage as well. All due respect, Meghan Markle has raised some eyebrows in the royal family. Do you not think Rahab the prostitute may have raised a few as well? Because going back to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Judah, the same line, the same tribe that Achan was from, this royal line, the line of Judah from Judah, and then later, there's Ram, and there's Aminadab, and then there's Nashon. And Nashon was the father of Solomon. And in Matthew 1.5, it says, And Solomon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse, the father of David. And eventually, it would be Jesus. This is amazing. Rahab is listed in the genealogy of Jesus, one of only four women that are listed there. Why her? And what a picture this would be, that this outsider has become not only an insider, but God brings her in to do his bidding and for his purposes to bring his Messiah into the world to save the outsiders of this world. And later, Jesus' half-brother James would write his book, and he would point her out because her faith wasn't just a mental, intellectual thing. It, was, it had feet. It had actions with it. And then when the writer of Hebrews writes in Hebrews of all these great men of faith, there are only two women that are included in Hebrews 11, and Rahab happens to be one. Of all the women of the Old Testament, why Rahab? Hebrews 11:31 by faith the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomes the spies, welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. I wonder, I wonder, if the reason that they marched around Jericho six days and then seven times on the seventh day is that God was giving the people of Jericho every single chance to fear him and to come to his side. If he would do that for Rahab, would he not have done that for all of Jericho? Had they feared the Lord, took him seriously, and come to his side? What I love about this story is you begin to see that there is no one on the outside who is outside of the reach 
of God's grace. And for all of scripture and for all of human history, she is remembered as Rahab the prostitute. But you think, what? couldn't she shake the title? Why is that condemning? Listen, I think the reason that she is always referred to as Rahab the prostitute is not to condemn her, but to encourage us. If God could reach someone like Rahab, if God could change someone like Rahab, if God could take an outsider like Rahab and make her an insider and use her for his purposes, he can do that with anybody. Because God's heart is always about redemption. It's always about redemption. I think even with Achan, it was giving him every chance to try to redeem the situation. With Jericho, giving him every chance to try to redeem the situation. If you'll just fear God, take him seriously, and come on his side. Now, I ask you to remember the Valley of Acre, which means the Valley of Trouble. This is so cool to me. 700 years later, there's a prophet named Hosea. And God says to Hosea, I kind of want you to repeat a little bit of the Sam and Rahab story. I've got a woman I want you to marry. Bummer, her name's Gomer. That should have set him off. Go marry Gomer. Gomer is an adulteress. She's unfaithful. She's broken the covenant more than once. And God says, I... Hosea, I want you to marry her because I want your marriage to illustrate to my people how I am with them. They're unfaithful to me, and yet I remain faithful. They break the covenant, and yet I remain true to the covenant. They continually go out and prostitute themselves to other gods, and yet I continue not to judge them, but to woo them and to draw them back. The, the beautiful part of, of Hosea is when he starts saying, this is what I want you to say. Your, your marriage will, will illustrate it, but I want to send this message to my people, Israel, that I long for them to come back and listen to these words out of Hebrew, uh, Hosea chapter two. Therefore, I am now going to allure her. Talking about Israel. I will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her back her vineyards and will make, look at this, I will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. This box canyon that you've dug yourself into, where there's nothing but trouble that you've brought on yourself, I will make that a door of hope. And there she will sing as in the days of her youth. You know why I love this? Because that's my story. Because of my sin. Because of my choices, my rebellion. I was an outsider. I had my own valley of trouble. And I couldn't do anything about it. But God, in his grace, turned my valley of trouble into a door of hope. Amen. And he offers me an outsider to become an insider. It's the grace of God. It's your story. It's our story. We were all outsiders. You see it with Jesus. I don't have time to go into all this. See it with Jesus. Those who would seem to be insiders, the Pharisees, he says, you're like the sons of hell. The tax collectors and the prostitutes, he says, you're entering into the kingdom. It's those who fear God and who want to come onto his side. And later, Peter, when he's called to go see Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, it says, then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. Whose side are you on? Ours are, you're asking the wrong thing. Are you on God's side? 
He doesn't show favoritism, but he accepts men from every nation who fear him, take him seriously, and do what is right. Come on, his side. You know what I long for, for me, for you, for us as a church? Is that we would see ourselves in these stories. And we would fear God. We would take him very, very seriously. And instead of trying to ask him to bless all of our things, that we would continually be saying, not my will, but your will be done. I want to be on your side, God. I want to keep in step with your spirit. I want to walk in your ways. And I want to live in the grace that brought an outsider like me inside the kingdom of God, the family. And I want to invite other outsiders to become insiders by the grace of Jesus Christ. You know, the statement we use around here is that we exist to alter the spiritual landscape one life at a time through Jesus. My life, your life, our lives, and the lives of others. So, a heavenly being, a soldier, and a prostitute walk into a church. And I pray that we walk out more aware of God's grace and extending that grace to a world of outsiders that Jesus came to bring inside.